0: Welcome to the Notion Club Podcast, I'm Justin Hall, and joining me is Joshua Gibbs. Joshua is a classical educator, a teacher, a lecturer on the subjects of pedagogy and on the great books. He is an author of several books himself, including How to Be Unlucky, Something They Will Not Forget, and an upcoming book called love what lasts joshua also teaches online courses on all of these subjects which you can access at gibbsclassical.com in today's discussion joshua and i will talk about what it means to be an adult becoming caretakers by cultivating in ourselves a taste and a love for the things that last the books the music the truths that were given to us as an inheritance and which enables us to live our lives doing both what we ought and what we like. This is episode 22 of season 2 of the Notion Club. First, thanks so much for, for joining me for a discussion. I kind of want to begin with Scruton, just because uh, it's rare for me to come across any native lover of Scruton. I've become somewhat of a Scruton evangelist. I don't know how many copies of his book on beauty I've handed out, but I'm continuously ordering new copies and handing them out. But what was what was your first encounter of Roger Scruton? And, uh, And I guess as a consequence, what are the important ways that Scruton has influenced you?
1: My first encounter with him was the Why Beauty Matters documentary, Hmm. which is available online. It's less than an hour long. It's completely accessible. Hmm. That was my first direct encounter with him. And from there, I read the short introduction to beauty and then moved on to his books on conservative politics and I've dabbled in the somewhat topical discussions on wine and sex and uh, romance and kitschy art and and all those other issues that kind of hang out around the central issue of stability and beauty which I think of as kind of the twin themes of his work Mm -hmm. how to create something that lasts um so uh, I also enjoy a lot of the, the kind of shorter pieces that he's written online, which I kind of moved into after I watched that, the documentary by Beauty Manners.
0: In one of your articles from this year on the perpetuation of adolescence, say, yeah. you call Scruton one of the great adults of our time. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a bit. I mean, when I
1: think of an adult, I think of a caretaker. I mean as somebody who has kids I primarily think of an adult as one who is the, the custodian of other human beings and that that's the role of an, of an adult and, a, and I think that that's um, just on a kind of mythological or archetypal level you know that you're leaving childhood behind when you become capable of producing children yourself mm. and that's the moment where, where God himself sort of inspires the body to become capable of perpetuation of the species. And you, you have to become responsible for the species at about that moment. And, you know, I mean, we're talking about like 12, 13, 14 years old. You become both capable of having children and childhood becomes a thing that you think of uh, as a sort of discrete period of the past as opposed to a thing that you're in. And you become self-aware, you know that you're naked, you hide from your parents like Adam and Eve. Uh, And you're turned on to all of those sorts of, um, those inclinations towards independence, curiosity, self-knowledge, the sort of discovery of the world that allows you to speak with confidence about it as as not being, um, your knowledge of the world is no longer taken from other people but is born out of a sort of direct experience. Um, And so Scruton, uh, Roger Scruton seems to me like like a kind of archetypical adult because uh, because his primary interest was, I mean, when I think of Scruton, I think of somebody whose primary interest was stability. Mm-hmm. Uh, how to create a stable society, how to create a society that lasts. And I've modeled my own family based on Scruton's concept of stability. I want my family to last, and, and the family and society have this sort of reciprocal relationship given how important the, the family is to society. So whatever is going to make a society last is going to make a family last and vice versa. So when I evaluate the sort of um, books and films and, and clothes and food and whatever it is that I let into my house that I give to my children, it's all born out of this question that I borrow from Roger Scruton, which is, is this going to help them last? Is it going to help them enter into a, a sort of responsibility, a sort of self-awareness and self-knowledge that allows you to be the custodian of other people? Am I, am I turning my children? who are only nine and 11 into adults, into the sort of people that will enjoy and cherish and love children of their own? Or am I just perpetuating childhood, perpetuating this sort of dependence on others, which is what a lot of childhood, you know, a lot of the really mediocre, awful things of childhood these days just perpetuate the state of dependence and uh, naivete.
0: Let me read an excerpt from that article you you say at the end, we must guard our homes from fashionable music, stories, films theology and books because fashionable things create sudden but ephemeral loves that never last long enough to take root and having too many rootless loves will make a man shallow when I think of Scruton I I do think of someone who has deep roots and very deep loves and someone who has cultivated loves and you know a, a great developed affection for perennial things and and things that aren't as you say fashionable mm. um you go on to say that uh when you do this you have to be prepared for the for the critique that you're a snob <laughs> that's right so uh well You know, there are a lot of questions that I'd like to get to about specifically classical education, which really takes on this perspective. I was wondering if if you could expound a bit on what you would call fashionable music or stories or films, you know, distinguishing that from, you know, stable, rooted loves. Yeah,
1: this is a a big question. And uh, I've written a book that'll be out later this year called Love What Lasts, Mm -hmm. which is on the subject of Fashionable art, which the term that I use in the book is mediocre art. Uh, art which is um, easy to love for a very short period of time uh, and, then, and then gives you very little on a second or third exposure or viewing or, or what have you. And I think that that's the, that's the primary way that I would describe um, fashionable art or fashionable music. Uh, it's music that plays to the senses. It's uh, sleek, sexy, uh, it's clever, witty. Exciting, thrilling, blasphemous—any um, uh, number of characteristics that that play big on a first exposure and are worth almost nothing on a second or a third. Um, so it takes—I mean, it takes a you know, it takes a, a truly clever joke, like a truly human joke, to still be funny on a fifth or sixth listen. And I think that if you've got a joke that's still funny the sixth time, you've got something sort of worthy on your hands. Whereas, I mean, making somebody laugh once with a joke is it's easy. It's like it's based on surprise. But like like Scruton says, uh, I forget which book this. Uh, no, I mean this is uh, why beauty matters. What is exciting the first time is banal the second time. If you if you know what's coming, and that's the only thing. Your ignorance is the only thing that made it interesting the first time. Uh, then your knowledge will make it boring the second time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of art that plays that way. It depends on your on your ignorance or just the shallowness of your level of inquiry, mm-hmm. and and it assumes that you're simply going to move on after your initial exposure. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if you've seen Transformers one and Transformers two, but not Transformers three, you have zero reason to watch Transformers <laughs> two for a second time. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it's worthless. Um, it's less than worthless. Uh, you. you all the you know, all the jokes, all the thrills are predetermined, and what drives you on is is your own ignorance of uh, of the third one. Like, what will the spectacles be? And I think that there's a lot of music that plays along the same lines. Like, we're we're interested in it because it seems knowledgeable, knowing, and cool, and and maybe it is cool, but but cool is a uh, cool just never has purchasing power that lasts very long.
2: Mm.
0: It's kind of the definition of cool. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. That which is short-lived.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've never thought about in those terms about a joke that that could be funny the f- the fifth time or, or humor. I, I was trying right. to think of well, what would fit that criteria. I suppose some limericks come to mind, and uh-huh. Wode sure. like Wodehouse is yeah uh, can be endlessly re- revisited. Yeah. Well, before continuing in the vein of classical education, I I've been thinking a lot lately about self-learning because I am at this point an autodidact having escaped from (laughs) higher education (laughs) just in the nick of time and so well first of all as a teacher I I assume that you teach yourself you continue to to learn and and research in your own space so I'm I'm curious if you've developed any kind of methodologies for self-learning and what your perspective of I guess autodidacticism would be
1: Autodidacticism is a is a great term. I prefer it to the more common term used today, which is uh, the lifelong learner. You hear a lot about the lifelong learner, and a and a friend recently remarked to me something I, I, I think quite true, which is that you know major U.S. corporations develop these um, you know staff development plans for their employees, especially people that are in uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies. And they love to tout the fact that their employees are lifelong learners and that their employees are always growing and always learning. Which seems really ridiculous to me because there's a sense in which everyone is always learning. Everyone may not always be reading books, but that's a, that's a different matter. Like everyone is always learning. You're always observing the world, you're always taking it in, you're always reevaluating what you thought the day before. So uh, the idea of a lifelong learner is is banal. Everyone's a lifelong learner. The question is whether you're a lifelong book reader and uh, more importantly whether you commit to anything because what a lot of big companies mean when they when they talk about the lifelong learner or somebody who's always growing is somebody who has no spine. They just go along with whatever the fashionable ethics are of the day. And as we go from, you know, I don't know whatever sexual perversity goes from, from being not allowed to being allowed and, and you as a modern company want to Make sure that you've um, thrown your law in with the zeitgeist. Uh, you have to come up with some kind of, uh, you know, fa- uh, some kind of intellectual-sounding excuse for just going with every way that the wind blows. And that, and that excuse is often a lifelong learner. Uh, so, you know, um, my opinion on this matter has evolved in the last two years, which really just means I'm, I'm gutless. I'll go along with whatever the majority claims to be uh, allowable, and that's, and that's really what lifelong learner means. Um, I like autodidact because it's the older term, uh, and because I like autodidact, provided that we're not thinking of a mind as a thing that's perpetually open to all new ideas. I believe what Chesterton said, an open mind is like an open mouth. It's meant to close on something. Uh, and an open mind that's perpetually open never grasps anything, it never closes on it, it's never committed to anything. it's was never faithful to anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I, I mean I suppose I would say I'm a lifelong learner in the sense that I'm going to keep reading books but by this point in my life I'm, I'll turn 40 uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, I've made my choices. I've decided on the ideas and the institutions and um, and the ecclesial bodies and the intellectuals and the, and the warriors and whatever that I'm going to be faithful to. And so now being a lifelong learner means learning more about them, not being kind of intellectually promiscuous and reading any book that anybody sets in front of me and, and says is good. So, um, provided that, that that's what's meant by autodidact, provided that the autodidact is willing to acknowledge allegiance to certain dogmas, And to not simply, you know, make himself open to any idea that happens to be out there at the time. Um, I think that that sort of of approach to learning is necessary. uh, Because once you make yourself an ally with something, then you can get deeper into it. Then you can commit yourself, and and you can suffer more for it, and it can mean more for you. And you can offer it more, as opposed to thinking, well, Marxism is fashionable this week. why not? I'll read that book. This sounds great. I'm growing and evolving and always learning, and and I'll just just be led along by whatever little eddy of doctrine seems to be um, on trend this week.
0: I've been, you know, in, in my own pursuits of I, well, to some extent, education is like a a, a never-ending quest to cure one's ignorance. Um, yeah. But there's a a passage in the Consolation of Philosophy. By Boethius, where Lady Philosophy, this this personification, essentially Lady Wisdom, comes blazing into the main character, and like like this angelic creature, and except her her dress is not just completely shredded, and uh, and the and the Boethius, the the writer, the main character, uh, asks her, why is your dress so tattered and shredded? Um, and she says, because so many false disciples of philosophy, of her, uh, tore it away and ran off with it with these little shreds and thinking that they had the whole of her. Yeah. And that's, that's haunted me, because how can I know that I'm not one of those false disciples with just a little shred, uh, you know, a, a tattered piece of, of the dress of lady philosophy, thinking I have the whole of her. Because one thing that an institution of ed- education can offer a school as opposed to just being a self-taught person is audit and oversight and uh, an environment of, of dialogue. so'm I, I, I haven't yet solved that problem. Have you thought about that in, in any of those terms and how do you I, I guess what is the audit for yourself? Um.
1: I, I think the safest thing to assume, so far as that question goes, am I one of these people that is merely torn a piece from Lady Philosophy's garment and run away and pretend like I have the whole thing? I think the answer is yes. I think you have to <laughs> assume that. Like, I assume that's true for myself. Um, or as a as a student of mine um, wrote, a, wrote a great essay on this recently. He said, you have to assume that you're lost in the dark wood with Dante, and that that's more or less the, the condition of your entire life. Mm-hmm. That you'll always be lost in the dark wood, and that you're always trying to find your way out. And that, and that likewise, you always are are working with a scrap of Lady Philosophy's garment, and you're always thinking that it's more than it is. Um, it's it's really no bigger than your hand, and, and you're trying to turn it into... Um, you know, you're trying to turn it into the whole skirt and bodice, but it's really, it's really not that much. So, I mean, that's what I assume of myself. I mean, I, I, um, that's what keeps me going. That, that's what, that's what keeps me reading is the, is the conviction that I am lost in a dark wood that I need to get out of, and, and that, I only have a scrap. Um, so far as you're absolutely right that the, that the audit is a, is a is a significant boon of of, of attending a university and. I mean, it's worth noting, though, that, um, I mean, you can only stay at the university so long, and then it's life itself that begins performing the audit. After a while, you know, your masters will leave you. Um, and then the question is, can you know, can you make your wife happy and can you make your children happy? That's, you know, that's the audit. Um, can you create a marriage that lasts? Can you create a productive marriage that's a, that's of use to you and, and, a, and a benefit to your spouse? And, spiritually satisfying, um, something that uh, is a blessing to your community as well. Can you create a marriage and a family that's a blessing to the people that you know? Are they glad that you exist? Are they glad that your family exists? I, and I don't mean to suggest that the university can't perform a real audit and that a master or a teacher can't perform a real audit, but, but I think that that's ultimately what they give way to, is, is the test of reality itself, um, the test of life itself. Can you take satisfaction in the life that you've carved out for yourself um, or are you miserable and, and dying for something else?
0: Well, how do you regard uh, universities as they are right now? What, what's your perspective on the state of mm-hmm. education?
1: Well, oh man, what a question. <laughs> I have I have two daughters, one 11 and one 9. I'm not planning on sending them to a university. Uh, at the end of every school year I have to write uh, letters of recommendation for you know several students to go to a university and over the course of my career I've gotten I've become far more exacting in what sort of um, audit I perform of my students before I'm willing to write them a letter of recommendation because the number of students who abandon the faith in college is so high um, and and to be honest and I, I wish it were not so but Um, You know, reading Plato's Republic when you're 17 is by no means a guarantee that you'll keep the faith when you go to college. So, you know, I've been a teacher for 16 years now. I've seen many students go to college, lose their faith in college. I mean, when I think of college, I I primarily think of it in this personal way, though. The College is the thing where a lot of my students lose their faith. That's the number one way I think of college. Um, And I, I can't think of college as merely this abstract... Uh, phase of life. I can't think of college as a sort of necessary springboard into the professional world. Um, I have a huge... uh, I'm very skeptical of colleges. There there are very few colleges that I would be willing or interested to send my children to. So few that I I really don't think that they'll go. Um, And I've already begun carving out some kind of um, plan for them to enjoy... And to benefit from the sort of freedom that you get from college and the sort of autonomy and independence, but without all the malign influences and, and foolishness and temptation that goes with college. That, uh, and I should say that both of, my, both of my children are girls, and that it might be a bit different if they were boys. I would certainly be looking at it differently if they were boys, but in as much as they're girls, given the, kind of, um, given the kind of sexual violence that's typical on the, the campus of the average American university, I'm not eager to see them go. I'm eager to see them leave the house. I'm not saying, you know, they have to be with me, and if they're not with me, they're not safe or something like that. So I would love that, you know, there's a number of people that I trust, families that I trust, um, intellectual people who I think are very brilliant, and I would love to have my daughters go live with them for a few years and just help them take care of the house and, uh, you know, just listen to their whatever teaching, just just absorb whatever whatever brilliance they have. But, but that would be my confidence in those men and their families and their you know the way that they've they've lived their lives. It wouldn't necessarily help them get a job someday. I mean, that's its own sort of separate concern.
0: right. Well, a couple of thoughts. one kind of interrelated. you talked about how life itself becomes the audit um, once you leave your masters and and I think that is absolutely true and and I, and I think we can you know building a a family you know that goes back to the stability of life in in a very Scrutonian sense. And I I think we can say that without becoming pragmatic. And so in some sense, you know, that is what an education ought to prepare one to do. um, To enter the, you know, leave one's masters and enter the audit of of life prepared for that. And obviously uh, universities on the whole are doing the opposite. And Maybe, maybe leaving aside universities, but education as it ought to be. Uh, obviously, classical education as a model aims to do that. And in an article, I think this week, you, you write, Like angels, man may fall. Uh, like animals, man may die. But unlike angels and animals, between the falling and the dying, a human being may be restored to God. A classical education is the education that naturally follows from this premise. So in other words, education is a restorative process, would you say?
1: Yes, absolutely. It's remedial.
0: Mm. So, you know, that presumes that there is a brokenness to be restored. And as we're seeing in universities, it, it seems to be exacerbating the brokenness rather than continuing the amelioration of it. Right, yeah. So, so how does classical education as a model, as, as education as, as it ought to be, how, how does it go about the restorative process?
1: Classical education stages an encounter between the student and the ways in which God reveals himself across time and across cultures. Which is which is by way of goodness, truth, and beauty. Um, goodness, truth, and beauty are not things that we have made. They are things that have made us. Uh, they are not responsible to us. We are responsible to them. And it's truth, goodness, and beauty that are that are understood within the you know the Christian tradition as the ways in which the divine manifests itself in eminent or ephemeral ways. And a classical education. Stages the the encounter between the student and God, really, Mm -hmm. in the belief or in the confidence or just the hope that when the student bears witness to God, they will recognize the worthiness of God and they will begin to um, reorder their own affections so that they love God the most and they love that which is closest to God, second most, and that which is second closest to God, or third closest to God, um, in a sort of appropriate order. So classical education is about this restoration of proper order in the heart, that that which deserves the most honor and glory and love is receiving the most. And this is not the way that we're naturally inclined. Like, it's very difficult to love God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I believe that, uh, and this is maybe the argument of my next book, um, contrary to what we might think, I actually think it's very hard to love beautiful things. I think it's very hard to love goodness and truth. Mm-hmm. They deserve our love, but beauty, truth, and goodness are dangerous, and they are demanding. And, and to serve goodness and beauty and truth is not necessarily pleasant up front. It often requires a great self-abnegation and loss and persecution, even. Beautiful things are not essentially pleasant as this you know the sort of big IMAX uh, entertainments that are, that are very popular in our day. Uh, it requires a, a more subtle spirit, a spirit that's more inclined towards God, to find real pleasure in a painting like you know the water carrier of Seville by Velázquez and it's really hard to understand a painting like anything by Velasquez or Caravaggio you know when your senses have been blown out by um, you know lingerie models and robots destroying New York City in 3D IMAX like you know, like your soul has been is corrupted by these things and it's blunted by these things so that things that have any kind of nuance or Things that attempt to connect the sensual world and the spiritual world in any kind of fine way are just thought too subtle and and just not worth your time because because of the you know the big time sensuality that sort of spoiled you on ease of pleasure. I, I mean, I, I do think that there's I think there's, there's a lot of real pleasure to be gained from you know Velasquez painting or an El Greco or or Bach or what have you, but it's not the same sort of pleasure that's offered by you know modern pop culture. Modern pop culture offers this kind of um, you know, tsunami of pleasure mm-hmm. uh, that that dulls the wit of the soul. Um, all the pleasure that the modern world offers is always at the expense of the more uh, of the subtle spiritual enjoyment. Um, it's all pleasure, no enjoyment. All pleasure, no satisfaction. It's a lot of promise and, and very little fulfillment, which is why we're always constantly hungry. Um, you know, modern people are fat; they're overweight because they're always hungry. And they're always hungry because nothing in the modern world is all that satisfying. It's not supposed to be satisfying. Uh, it's supposed to buy, provide pleasure, but not satisfaction, which, you know, these two things are very different. Uh, you can eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and have a lot of pleasure and still be hungry, and it, you know, it won't have, it won't have done you any good. And that's for the same reason why, you know, you can listen to, um, I mean, you can listen to pop music for hours. It just has no effect on you. Like, you listen to it and it's gone, and it just didn't do anything for you. Whereas, you know, you listen to Beethoven's Seventh, when you, and when you're done with it, you're content for it to be quiet for a while. You don't need uh, something else immediately when it's over. You need some time to to recalibrate now that um, now that you've borne witness to this, this beautiful thing once again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that that's, you know, maybe a classical education is also about, and, and this sounds like a really dull way of putting it, and a lot of people don't like this, but um, I mean, a classical education is about having good taste. It's about learning to love things that are worthy of loving, mm-hmm. and that's what good taste is. Mm-hmm. Good taste is not just... Um, well, I like expensive wine. Good taste is is things that are beautiful give me real pleasure. Mm. That's what good taste is. Good taste is is a rejection of the sort of lesser base or more animal pleasures that are often offered by um, popular culture mm. um, because those things don't have anything to offer the soul. And if your soul uh, doesn't last, then, well, you've wasted your life. And so <laughs> classical education is about about living in such a way that you can... That you will last, mm-hmm. n- that you will not fade away, or as you know, you will not become one of these technically living but basically non-existent people that Lady Philosophy describes mm-hmm. when she likens the wicked to the evil, um, or evilness to to almost like a zombie-like state.
0: So you have the, the ordering of affections, um, getting the the priorities of affections right, learning what to love. <laughs> and then learning how to love it and to develop. Yeah. Uh, I think the developing good taste is so important. It's, a, it's such a dangerous proposition, though, for our culture, because, yeah. I, you know, I think that's where I know plenty of people who would absolutely agree with the first part about developing affections. But then on the second part about taste, you know, it's so hard for us to understand that there's actual, you know, there's, there's metaphysical... Value in one preference over another, and Scruton yeah. Scruton talks about when it comes to taste, especially in in music, we can we can sit here and have a have a discussion about preferences and our taste for ice cream, and maybe you like one flavor and I like another, and and that doesn't necessarily have any implications for a, a reality beyond our own preferences, but um, for one person to have a preference for. Uh, death metal music, and another person to have a preference for Bach. You know th- right. that that Im- that implies a a reality that is far beyond just the preference. Right. Um, and I think it is somehow true that well, I mean it's evidently true that that the things that are that last do take more effort to develop a taste for. I remember one of my favorite pieces movements from a piece. It's the the second movement, the slow movement from Schubert's cello quintet Mm -hmm. Um, and it's possibly the most profound slow movement that I've I've heard. I remember the first time I listened to it, it was on Apple Music, I had my earbuds in and uh, I forget exactly what I was looking for, maybe a piece to perform or I was going through repertoire and I listened to the first 15 seconds of it and the movement is very repetitive, for you know the it's the violin playing this one figure, and then repeating it and then repeating it and I got fifteen seconds and then I just clicked to the next track because it was just you know uh, it was repetitive, kind of slow. There didn't seem to be much to it, but I've I've listened to it maybe a couple hundred times since then, mm. and each time it just seems deeper. Uh, it seems like a sponge. It, not only is there's just incredible beauty in and of itself, but it seems to have allocated memories, and it's just incredibly deep and moving, um, and I know it's going to continue accumulating meaning. That to me is is a profound example of something that began in a place that I, I couldn't appreciate it. You know, there was nothing saccharine about it whatsoever. Right. So how, how do you Go about helping students develop a good taste, because as a as a teacher myself, I I find it easy to teach technique, to teach truths, dogmas, uh, realities, but cultivating affections is such a such a challenge.
1: Yeah, a couple things come to mind. The first thing comes to mind is is that exposure is a big part of it. Mm the teacher's responsibility is to give students access to things that they wouldn't seek out on their own. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the remarkable responsibilities of the classroom. Is one of the reasons why, you know, there's nothing, uh, you know, sinful about it, but there's really, no, there's really no point in giving students things in a classroom that they can understand and will seek out on their own. And it grants, you know, it grants this sort of novelty to the classroom whenever you play something for students that they already know or you read something to students that they already know and they, and they feel tickled for a moment and delighted that you know, you're, the teacher is granting the time of day for you know, some Cardi B song or what have you. Uh, and, and, and it feels weird whenever the classroom is connected with the world outside the classroom. But, but the classroom is, is really a sacred space and you have to be careful in guarding the classroom because the, so many good things, I mean, I'm just thinking about myself personally. Um, like a good number of the good things in the world, someone has to give to you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There are very few good things that people seek out on their own. Like, like you know, if you were to if you were to ask, uh, you know, do a survey of of a thousand human beings in America who read The Divine Comedy for the first time in 2020, ask how many of them. you know, how many of those thousand people read it on their own Mm -hmm. versus how many were handed a copy and said, all right, this is the next book in the curriculum. Like, when it comes to good things, you need someone to give it to you. Mm -hmm. You need somebody to get you started. I mean, I think the same is true, really, of, of a lot of really fine music is that you need somebody to, you need an individual, you need a human being to look you in the eye and say, this is necessary, you need to hear this. That's entirely different to merely saying, "Well, people have access to Divine Comedy. You might a dollar copy, um, you know, Barnes and Noble Classics edition." Like the fact that you have access is very different from somebody actually handing it to you and saying, "You know, this is this is the good stuff right here." You know, that's what tradition is. Tradition is that which is all tradition. Presumes three parties: the one who hands it down and receives it, and then the next party who receives it. And there's no tradition really if you if if you just buy Virgil's Aeneid at a bookstore. That's not tradition necessarily the odds that you're actually going to read the Aeneid if you buy a copy on your own and no one's you know pressuring you to read it are, are fairly low one of the most basic things is just exposing people um, to the sorts of things that you want them to come back to later and, and I think that's the ultimate for a classics teacher that's the goal um, I think he, there's a lot of young teachers who you know who teach a book like the Iliad or the, you know, the Odyssey and I have this concept of mastery in their minds, like, I want my students to master this book. I want them to write an essay that proves that they're mastering this book. It's a terrible goal. The, but the greatest goal I have as a classics teacher is this. I want my students to read this again at some point later in their lives. Like, that's the ultimate goal. Like, if you're handing students the Odyssey for the first time, your goal is to teach it in such a way that they read it ever again after they leave. That they, they, that they choose to read it once. Forget the fact that they can write an interesting essay on it, forget the fact that they know all the female characters' names and they can make interesting comparisons from one female character to the next. How is Cersei like Penelope? Who cares? What you really want them to do is begin the book and never really finish it. You want them to read it for the first time at 18 or 19 and then just read it any other time. And, And that's the question that teachers need to be asking themselves. And I think that that right there, I mean that's another thing that I learned from Scruton. You're trying to give students a stable love of the Odyssey, a love of the Odyssey that will last beyond the confines of the class. So whatever you've got to do when you teach the Odyssey to get people to ever read it again, just read it for the second time. And always ask yourself that. What am I going to have to say about this book that's going to make people read it again on their own? I think that's the the highest possible standard you could hold yourself to. Because a student could write a great essay about the book and despise it. Right? And then it wouldn't do them any good. I mean they could write a great essay and you tell them, "Oh, hey, it's a great essay. And they think, well, wow, I conquered that book. Smarter than smarter than Virgil. That was that was nice. I hardly put any effort into it at all. Whereas if you can get a student who writes a C essay in high school, but they swear to themselves, By God, I'll read this again, and then they do, that's that's the mark of success right there. You've really you've begun to reorder their affections if you can get them to will to read it on their own.
0: Well, a couple things. First, I, I guess that's partly what I uh, was getting at about audit. I mean, one of the most yeah. important things about audit is having somebody who points you to the things that you wouldn't find on your own, and that's something that yeah, I mean, right. it's it's hard to find that once you leave the masters. You know, um, that that right. search for those things becomes a much more difficult quest. Mm. Um, which is why I've I found it absolutely essential to surround myself with with people who have a great love for truth, goodness, and beauty and can, you know, we can share with each other. But getting your students to that place where they, they swear to themselves to revisit this, this piece of art, I mean, do, do you do that primarily by loving it in front of them?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, give them an example to follow. Your students will not love anything that you don't love. Mm-hmm. You know, James Baldwin once said, Children have never been good at listening to their parents, but they've never failed to do with their par- to imitate their parents. Uh, so, I mean, if you want your students to love something, you have to love it. Mm-hmm. If you don't love it, you know, they'll not love it. Um, so, yeah, performing your love in front of them. You know, I think you're right. I think that um, that your own love needs to be a sort of invitation for them to follow. But I, I think that there's also, there's a way of loving them in such a way that students receive that love as an offer which they themselves can follow. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of the most difficult things to do when you're 17 or 18 is to imagine the world from a realistic standpoint, looking at the world from you know, the perspective of somebody who's 27 or 28. And so constantly calling your students to try to evaluate the world as they want it to be 10 or, you know, 15 years down the line is, is, is a helpful thing to do. So one, I mean, one of those questions that I ask my students is, like, take a survey in your mind of all the things that you listen to right now. How many of those things do you still want to be listening to 10 years from now? Like, take all the music that you listen to now at the age of 17. A lot of my students are 17. Uh, do you still want to be listening to that music when you're 27? I mean 27, you're going to be two years married on average. Um, is this the sort of music that you want to take into married life? Do you want to have your first child crawling around on the rug while you're listening to Maroon 5? Or is that just kind of a terrifying thought? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of students are honest enough with you to admit that they cannot take their loves at 17 into adulthood. The thing is, is that like, Beethoven's still going to be there when you're, when you're 27. He's not going anywhere. Maroon Five is not going to be around, you know, <laughs> ten years from now. That'll be, you know, that'll be old. That'll be, you know, lame old people's music. Um, but the struggle to enjoy Beethoven, the, the struggle to like Beethoven, is worthwhile because he's been around for two hundred years. He's going to last for another two hundred years, and that's that's the sort of obligation that we feel towards beautiful things. Like we make these sort of vows to like beautiful things. We wish that we like beautiful things. Like, you, you know, you see people like standing in Barnes and & Noble and they're flipping through a copy of Paradise Lost and they're like, oh, God, I wish I liked this. But nobody ever says that with, with pop music. Like when, you know, when Maroon 5 comes on the radio, no one's like, oh, God, I wish I liked this, but I don't, and then turn the channel. Like, you feel no obligation to pop music. Mm-hmm. It either gives you pleasure or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't give you pleasure, eh, try something else. But if Beethoven doesn't give you pleasure, you feel that you've let it down. You feel like you've let down Beethoven. You feel some responsibility to beautiful things and you feel that you either owe it to your your grandparents or yourself or your own soul to learn to love beautiful things you know if you admit that you have really terrible taste and it's going to take you 10 years to learn to say i really love beethoven 7 that's fine it's going to be there for you like it's not it's not going anywhere mm-hmm. and there's a great crowd of people that are going to be there waiting for you whenever you finally learn it whereas pop music's not worth spending 10 years to learn to love because it's going to be gone by the time that you learn to love it So, I mean, that's that's just one of those things that, you know, I I bring this up to my students, like, great things will be there for you when you're ready for them. Mm -hmm. And all this other stuff will have just passed away. And you will regard all the time and money that you spent on these things that have passed away as something of a waste of time. Like, you were listening to things that were pleasurable for the last 10 years, when you could have been learning to love something that you could carry into old age. Like if you learn to love Beethoven by the time you're 27, you're just gonna love it for the rest of your life. Which means that by the time you're like 77, or you know, 50 years later, you will have committed so much, you will have suffered so much, you will have given over so much to Beethoven. That music will mean more to you just because of how much time you've given to it. it I mean, it'll, it'll be this whole record of your life, whereas Pop music is just kind of this embarrassing list of confessions that you make to yourself 20 years later. Mm. I used to like this, you say, this (laughs) chagrin.
0: Right, yeah. One of the greatest teachers I I ever had, certainly one of the most brilliant people I've I've ever met, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of music. That was all true. But one of the things he asked, um, he would often ask his classes, uh, was what is the... first piece of music that you will play for your first child when they're just born what will be the music that that introduces them to the Hmm. world um yeah that's a great question (sighs) and and it's i mean obviously i mean maroon 5 is probably not going to be on the list right um well it casts into perspective the the value of a thing something you mentioned about uh A dichotomy between the student who supposedly let's say has a mastery of a book, um, writes an A plus essay but detests the book, uh, and then the student who who loves the book or has a burgeoning love for that piece of art and writes a C essay. How do you assess your students? What's what's your philosophy of of grading in that case?
1: Um, My goal is to give psychologically realistic grades. And that's really been my goal for maybe five or six years now. Um, so I I try to limit myself really to just five grades. Uh, a 94, an 84, and a 74 constitute the majority of my grades. A zero typically means it has to be redone. And I give a perfect score of a 10 maybe once every two years. I haven't given a perfect score on any writing assignment for... Over two years now, close to three years. I uh, you know, some students have gotten close, but um, I hate grades. <laughs> I wish that they didn't exist. I think that they um, cannot fail uh, to corrupt uh, the whole process of education. Mm-hmm. And I, I would love for them to go away. And uh, you know, I think a lot of people hear that, and it just sounds like, uh, you know, relativism. It sounds like choose your own adventure, or whatever feels right to you. And it's, and it's a bit difficult to explain to people that um, I'm not a relativist and, I, and I'm not a sentimentalist and I'm okay with hurting people's feelings to make them better <laughs> off, uh, but that I still hate crates and, and wish that they had nothing to do with the educational system. I would love for... I mean, I have an online... I have an online... I call it an online classroom. I guess it's an online school, gibbsclassical.com. And when I'm allowed to do things my own way, I don't give grades. I give assessments. I mean, I, I give assignments and I give <laughs> written feedback uh, where I you know, describe what worked and what didn't, and both on a content level and a thematic level and all that. Uh, but it can't be really reduced to a grade. And I do find it remarkable, though, that, that some of the best work I've encountered in the last 12 months is from my online school where people are not laboring for grades. Mm. Uh, I, I find it truly remarkable the quality of work that's done when grades are not on the line. There's no, there's no system to game whenever there's no, no grades. So the students are genuinely writing because they want to impress you. And I think that that's, the, that that's one of the, the best standards that there is, is the attempt to impress a subjective audience mm. in your writing is one of the, not to flatter them, of course, uh, but to impress people who are worthy of being impressed. And I mean, that's a standard that I hold my own children to. Whenever I I catch wind that my children are doing something to amuse their classmates, I always scold them and tell them, like, the teacher's opinion is the only opinion that matters in that classroom. Like, you appeal to the most important person in the classroom, the most knowledgeable person in the classroom. And I think that that, I mean, that generally works. I mean, that's how people choose mentors. They choose people that they want to impress, that they're impressed by, and they enter into this reciprocal relationship of giving honor and receiving honor. And that's really what grades ought to be, right? I think that that grades ought to be this sort of reciprocal giving and taking of honor, Mm. uh, giving and taking of glory. And I guess at the end of the day, I don't think that there's a whole lot of real glory to be obtained by grades. I think that grades are far more monetary and fiscal, but there's not real glory to be had in them. Mm. And, the, and the fact that America's currently got this, you know, this rising inflation problem in terms of our money markets has only been borne out by the fact that we have terrible grade inflation as well. and we have a button that you push that creates more money and we have a button that you push that creates better grades and we've been hitting that button just constantly for the last twenty years and thus there's no more glory really or honor to be had in the education system.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess to wrap up this this discussion, what what are some what are some of the books and some of the pieces of music that you plan to still be reading and listening to in twenty years?
1: In twenty years, off the top of my head, the books that I plan to still be reading 20 years from now are Jane Eyre The Comedy Constellation of Philosophy Plato's Republic Ecclesiastes The music I hope to still be listening to then Uh, Faure's Requiem Goldberg Variations and I'd love to still be listening to a lot of uh, my children's favorite music by then I play my my children listen to a lot of sort of classic Americana the last thing that they really got into was probably my mother's hymn book, the Johnny Cash collection of old Protestant hymns. Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. all <laughs> love that kind of thing.
0: So you said you're, you have a book coming out later this year about yes. lasting loves. What, when will that yes. come out? That should be out
1: through the Circe Institute, probably in mid to late fall. And that is a, that's an art history, art philosophy book. It's, it's really concerned with art before and after the French Revolution, mm-hmm. uh, art under a system of aristocratic patronage versus capitalist, consumerist sort of art, and, and what happens to art when it becomes mass produced, what happens when there's absolutely no rubric or standard, or in anybody who's ultimately responsible for this sort of art, art is based entirely on what is popular. As opposed to a system of patronage where you had one artist who was responsible, one patron who was responsible, and if somebody is creating, you know, lousy or, you know, blasphemous art, uh, you, can, you can stick the blame for it clearly on somebody. Whereas in the sort of modern system, whatever sells, is you're going to get more of it no matter what. So, you know, whatever sells, even if people don't even like it, you know, if 20 million people buy a Meshbox 20 CD, it doesn't matter that all but 10 of them, you know, give it to Goodwill a week later. You're going to get more of that. Like You get more of whatever people buy. And people buy things for a lot of really rotten reasons. (laughs) I think people have terrible reasons for buying what they do. So the book is kind of this survey, art before and after, uh, a system of uh, patronage.
0: Well, I'm sure we could have a whole podcast episode about writing craft. Well, I'm very much looking forward to your upcoming book about lasting loves. I mean, I I think that's a uh, a premise that I think is absolutely essential for our time. Well, thanks so much for this discussion. Yeah, uh, I found it inspiring and encouraging.
1: Absolutely, glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Mm-hmm.